You can clap for them. It's okay. That's, that's legal. It's okay. They give up a lot of time and a lot of energy to share their gifts and talents with us. And trust me, uh, you don't want me up here, right? Singing. Or maybe period. Anyways. Hey, I want to bring your attention to something briefly before we get rolling here. Inside your bulletin, we're going to try something new, right? It's fun to try new stuff. So inside your bulletin, there is a bingo card. And that bingo card is reflective of things that are inside my sermon, hopefully. They're also reflective of, you know, weird quirks I may have. So in an attempt for our younger audience and also our younger in heart audience to be a bit more involved and participate. Hey, that is there for you. So here's the deal. If you get a bingo, we all want to know that you got a bingo. Is that for Presbyterian? Amen. Yes. Yes, I believe. Yes, John Calvin writes about the bingo card in the Institutes. Hey, would you turn with me to Psalm 80 as we get rolling today? I'm very excited and very privileged to be with you again. Uh, you guys have continued uh, just, just to be such a warm, hospitable, kind of stabilizing, healing you know, presence for me and my family for several, several months now. And I'm just, just very appreciative uh, for all that. If you don't know me, my name is Nathan. I'm, I'm a retired Cornerstone pastor and uh, church planter, um, beginning a new adventure soon. Then I'll tell you more about us um, in, the, in the near future. <laughs> But nevertheless, today uh, we look at Psalm 80. And here's a question I want to ask as we kind of set up the text this morning. And it's something I've been wrestling with for probably my entire life, like you. Uh, but really, this past week in particular, and it's this. Here's my, here's my question. Why do we care so much about what people think about us? Have you ever thought about that? Or maybe I could phrase it like this. Why does other people's approval mean so much to us? I mean, you know what I mean. All of us have given this some thought at some point or another. And one of the reasons I think I've, I'm learning, one of the reasons I think I'm learning is this. When someone gives someone approval, what they're essentially doing is they're giving them an invitation to belong. That's what approval is in its essence. It's giving someone in the invitation to belong. And when we experience this invitation, it gives us a shared sense of identity, of destiny, of interdependence, of value, of significance, of significance, of worth. Does it not? Being approved is a very joyful experience, indeed, that all of us have experienced and all of us cherish at different times and different places. But as with most of events or phenomenons in this life, there's also a dark side to approval, a.k.a. when we don't get approval. And as joyous as it is to get, gain approval from someone, it's as disastrous oftentimes when we don't get approval, especially from the people like we feel, feel like we need approval from the most. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and you're 100% correct, right? Sometimes disapproval is necessary. Sometimes it's necessary, and that's very true. There are certain actions and beliefs and lifestyles and, and philosophies, I think, that ought to be met with disapproval for the health and flourishing of the individual, like for their good, to love them well, so that there's no harm involved. Disapproval oftentimes is appropriate. But even having said that, let's be honest with ourselves. Whether being disapproved is right or it is holding up some kind of integrity, at the same time, it's still painful. It's still awful 
Why? Because if approval is an invitation to belong, what is disapproval? It's an invitation to be wrong. It's an invitation to be isolated. And those things are devastating because ultimately, how we interpret disapproval is that there is something wrong with us. And again, whether that be true or not, it still is excruciatingly painful. And what's unfortunate is that we know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And more than that, you feel what I'm talking about. You know, from a very early age, we begin to experience the trauma that is disapproval in both small and, and large ways. This week, I asked several different people, like, hey, have you ever had an experience where you were really approved by someone? And I'd ask them the reverse question. Have you ever had an experience really disapproved by someone? And I'm so fortunate, and I feel so thankful for people just being open and honest with me. And I heard stories that go back to childhood and come up to current day. Stories like memories of being in, in physical education class and being picked last because everyone disapproved of their athletic ability. Or stories of spouses with unrealistic expectations for their other spouse and them having to live through this atmosphere of perpetual, perpetual disapproval. And many, upon many, upon many, shared very honestly about their own parents having expectations that they could just never meet. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how much they wanted it, their parents withheld their approval from them. Guys, these are tragic situations because disapproval tells us there's something wrong with us, that we don't belong, that we don't have value, that we don't have significance. Even if the disapproval is necessary, that's still the inevitable outcome. The psalmist in Psalm 80 is going to really dive into this aspect of this common human experience. Because listen, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you're religious or not religious, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, all of us deal with this need to be approved by other people. Why? Because it's quintessential to the human experience. Now what's so fascinating to me is that th thus far I'm just talking about human approval. You know, parents, friends, coworkers, whatever it may be. But what the psalmist brings into it, which is really interesting, is our approval not just for humans, but also for God himself. Because think about it just logically for a second. If we need people in our lives to approve us, people that are imperfect, finite, make mistakes, but we still need their approval if there is a God who is holy, righteous, wonderful, beauty beyond measure, our very own creator himself, how much more do we need his approval? But what happens when we don't get his approval? Or let's say it like this, maybe more drastic, maybe what the psalmist is dealing with in particular. What happens when we get God's disapproval? How devastating would that be in our lives? What the psalmist is going to do is he's going to show us why this is important not from a theoretical standpoint, but from his own standpoint, from his own personal experience, as being someone who has experienced the approval of God and is now currently experiencing disapproval of God. So look with me at Psalm 80. It's long, but we're going to look at it, and you're going to love it. <laughs> Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, 
You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God, that your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with, your, with the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. And all, the mo- all, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong by your, for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man, on your right hand, of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Would you pray with me? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, this is a hard text because like most of the Psalms and all of your scripture, it penetrates deep into who we are as human beings and calls us to align ourselves with a design that you have made. And Father, when we do such a thing, our life is such a blessing because we get what we want most, and that's you. But Father, there are times in which that presence of your goodness is absent. So we're thankful for the psalmist. Father, we're thankful for his words and his honesty, as hard as it is to read. Lord, in the midst of this, as you did with him, as you've done with your people since day one, would you give us a tremendous amount of hope? Because your promises are sure. Your faithfulness is steadfast. We need you and more of you and more of you and more of you. You are our only teacher. Give us wonderful things to behold this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All human beings have been designed, or let's say it like this, all human beings have been made to experience God's approval. That's the good news. That's really good news. We've all been made to experience this approval. In the first three verses, the psalmist goes ahead and sets out his, his agenda, what he's going to do. The first thing he does in verse 1 is he, t- he says, hey, let's concentrate on this exalted shepherd. God, you are this exalted shepherd. And in a real way, the first three verses are kind of like Psalm 23, if you're familiar with that psalm, on steroids. It's like, yes, you're not just the shepherd, you're the exalted shepherd. And because of that, his second, his second His second plea is this, deliver us. We are in a situation that we have found ourselves in because of our own disobedience to you. Neighboring nations are coming in barrages and taking us away from the land that you have given us. We cannot defend ourselves, but you can. Help us, deliver us. And then he closes his plea in verse 3 with a fantastic verse that he's going to repeat at least three more times, or a variation of it three more times. When he says, restore us. Why? Why restore us? 
Because ultimately, rest, this cry of, re- of restoration is a cry for approval. Approve us once again, O Lord. Let your dissatisfaction go away. We need your approval more than anything else. When the psalmist says, let your face shine, commentators tell us this is exactly what he means. It's the idea of this proud, loving, beamingly excited father and his face in particular just lighting up because of the joy and delight that he finds in his son. This is what the psalmist has not known in a vacuum. He's known it in, he's known it in his own experience, and that is gone now. And he's saying, that's what I need back more than anything else in the world. I need you to look at me in the eyes and be proud of me. I need you to look at me and be approved for who I am. Because what is approval? It's an invitation to belong. This is the heart cry of all human beings. This is the way in which we have been wired. Now listen, like like most honest men, maybe dishonest men too, but like most honest men, you know, my, my relationship, when I talk about my relationship with my father, it's complicated. You know, I know that he loved me. I know that he cared about me. He just wasn't as vocal about it as maybe I wanted him to be. Now, as, I'm, as I've gotten older and I reflect back on our relationship and stuff like that, I think a lot of it was ships passing in the night. I do believe that my dad was proud of me, that he, that he approved me. I, I really do believe that. We just never were on the same page as far as communicating to each other in a way in which we needed to communicate. Does that make sense? You with me? We just weren't on the, on the same wavelength except for one day in particular. When I was 14, I, I really wanted to be a pastor. I know. Crazy. Actually, it's not crazy. Do you know why I wanted to be a pastor? Because I loved my youth pastor and all he did all day long was play Xbox. And I thought, if this... <laughs> If this is what ministry is, sign me up. When I was 16, I finally felt like, for the first time in my life, that God had, was really calling me to this pastoral world, right? which, again, <laughs> was saturated with thinking about just playing video games and you know, get to talk in front of people and stuff like that. But nevertheless, when I was 16, I decided I, I want to be a pastor. I want to pursue this route. And I remember, I'll, I'll never forget, instantly after making the commitment publicly, I think I told pretty much everyone in my life that this is what I was committing to, except for my dad. So finally I got really convicted, and I thought, no, you, I need to tell my dad about this. And so one summer morning, he was sitting outside drinking coffee, and I went and sat down next to him. And I remember just being so nervous, and I don't know why I was nervous. He never gave me any reason to be nervous, other than I was just nervous. And I just, so I just blurted it out, Dad, I, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. I think this is what God is calling me to do. And I remember he jerked his head around, just slightly spilling his coffee, which was really unreal, because the man could do anything with a cup of coffee in his hand and never spill the coffee. But nevertheless, the, co- the coffee drizzled on the side of the cup. And I, I remember, I, I wish I could remember more vividly what he said. But in that moment, I didn't really, I didn't need, I didn't need his words. All I needed was the disposition that he had of just sheer excitement and joy and I remember him just just grabbing me and squeezing me and you know even as a you know even even as a 36 year old man now I still look back on that moment 
And it really helps me in the most difficult of, of times, especially in my vocation. You know, you guys have known this now, or if you don't, I'll tell you. You know, the past years have been difficult for us. You know, but I've been able to go back and draw on that singular experience of being so approved by my dad to where it helps me take the next step, just do the next thing. It helped me study hard in seminary. It helped me do my first marriage, my, or, I mean, my first marriage ceremony. You know, it helped me, I mean, it helped me do marriage too, but... <laughs> It helped me do my first funeral, my first counseling session, my first baptism, like all these things. Like that moment was so pivotal that it literally has been able to give me, it's been so catalytic to where I've been able to look back on that and be able to propel forward. Now here's the deal. My dad's awesome. I told you this before. My dad is wonderful. My dad is also a sinner. He's a finite human being. How much more can the approval of God himself change the trajectory of our lives. How catalytic could we live and navigate the good times and the most difficult times of life knowing that our Creator looks at us and says, yes, you belong. You're valuable. You're wonderful. How much, how much greater would that be? That was a catalytic moment for me. But it's even more catalytic knowing that there is a God who does approve us, who does care deeply for us, who does think that we're valuable, and does invite us to belong. Like all of us, all human beings have been made to experience this approving of God. Yet, experiencing this approval costs a great deal. It costs a lot. The cost of God approving us, or the cost of God's approval period, is perfect obedience. That's the cost. Like, God cannot approve something that's less perfect than himself. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't make theological sense. He's so holy and righteous and wonderful. That's why his command to his people is be perfect as I'm perfect. This is the, this is the, this is the way in which God approves people is as if they're perfect as, as he is. When our obedience is perfect, he renders, the result is him being approving Yet when we're not perfect, as Israel is experiencing this, when they betray the covenant that God has given them, when they go their own way, they're not met with God's approval, but His disapproval. And you and I know that, very, we know that from our own lives. We know that as we drift, things start to change. We know that, that there's a, there's, we've been made for this approval, but man, it comes at such a high, incredible cost. And we see from the psalmist, he mentions several different ways in which God, God's disapproval is, is manifesting itself in their, in their lives. In verse 4 and 5, he says that God's provisions have stalled because he's not approving of them. And what's going on? His protection is waning in verse 6 and 7 because he doesn't approve of what they're doing. They're experiencing God's disapproval. And God's relationship with his people have been, has been completely turned upside down. And the psalmist is asking the most honest of questions. What in the world is happening? He is utterly confused. And he says in verse 8 through 13, look, look at verse 8. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, in a metaphor referring to Israel as a people. You've brought us out. You've drove away the nations. You've done all these things for us. Where are you now? It's this utter confusing moment that, thank the Lord, 
We have record, wholly inspired record, of another human being just being honest with God. Just side note. Like, we talk about being honest with God and how that's a good thing. But isn't it a blessing to see other people and how honest and how raw they are? Like, if we're honest, like I said before, this is a hard text to read. For several different reasons. It's a very difficult text to read. But my question really, my, my, my question really, really is this. Like, if God is so loving and God is so great and God has in the past provided for Israel, like, why all of a sudden is he just hitting the eject button on them? This doesn't seem like the loving, nice God that we, 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 we tend to think that he is. Now, I think there's a simple answer. The simple answer is, well, they sinned. They messed up. They were unfaithful. And so now God is allowing them to go their own way, and they're suffering the repercussions of that. And I think, yes, that is true, very true. However, if you're like me, that's not that helpful. And I think the psalmist knows that's not, that's not incredibly helpful for us. And so what he does is inside this text, he gives us a better, not a better, a more, a more efficient understanding of exactly why Israel has lost God's approval. Why he's treating them in, in, this, in this such way. And there has something to do with the way in which Israel is portraying themselves to the nations. Did you notice? I mean, I read it kind of quick. But did you, if you notice several different times, like in verse 6, in verse 12, and verse 13, God mentions, or the psalmist is mentioning, his embarrassment over how the nations are thinking about them. Now, that is a, that's a weird thing to think. That's a weird thing to say if we just are looking at it at face value. Like, why is he so concerned with how the nations think? Why is that a thing? Why does he even mention in that? Why does he say that? And I think this is the reason why. Because there is a fundamental sin or sphere of unfaithfulness in which Israel has committed. And it's gotten them in this situation. And it's this. Throughout a lot of the Psalms, especially in book three, if you, if you peruse through They'll talk about the nations, and the nations looking at them with content, contempt, and not content, contempt, and you're, you're, they're just so preoccupied with what other people are thinking, and the question is, well, why? Here's why. Because fundamentally by design, the mission of God for Israel was that they would showcase the wonder and glory of God living faithful to him in the land that he had given them in such a way to where the neighboring nations would come to Israel and say, wow, you've got to give me the secret sauce to why this society is flourishing so much. Like, that's their mission. And it's not just like, it's not just a checklist that God gives them. It's fundamental to their design as human beings. Like, God has created you and called you and given you this significant position so that you participate in what he's doing in the world around you. And for Israel, it meant being faithful so people came in. I think it was last year. Jeremy, if you're watching, correct me, or later or something. I think it was last year. But last year was, last year a few years ago, was MTV's 30-year birthday, anniversary. MTV, music, television, videos. If you don't know what MTV is, I cannot help you, right? But there was this meme that I kept seeing all the time. Maybe, maybe you saw it too. It was the 30th birthday MTV at the top. had a big MTV logo, logo. And then at the bottom it said, thank you MTV for three years of music videos. 
You get it, 30 years or three years. Well, the joke is hilarious. Why? Because MTV was established to, for lots of different societal reasons, but primarily it was to showcase artists and their music videos and things like that, which about three years in, they started shifting the company's ideals to other things, animated cartoons and real world versus... You know, all, all, all of that stuff, right? I know you guys never watch or anything like that, but, but you know, all the, they started shifting its entire paradigm, which was interesting because MTV was fundamentally designed to showcase music videos, something they abandoned immediately. In a very real sense, in a very real sense, Israel has done the same thing. They have been designed to function in a certain way, in this kind of centripetal mission to where they would establish themselves as faithful servants of the Lord and the nations would be attracted. And they have said, forget that design. We are going to do our own design. And God says, fine, but guess what? You don't have my blessing. And there's going to be a whole lot of things that happen that you're not going to like because you are fundamentally made for this. You choose to do this, so sorry. Fast forward to 2023. I think as a people, haven't we really kind of done the same thing? Or are we not at least subject to doing the same thing? I mean, the design is so evident for what Israel is supposed to be in the Old Testament, starting in the garden. Like, I want you to work the ground, keep the ground. Adam and Eve, cultivate it, use your imagination, make it beautiful, make it represent the kingdom of heaven as it is, on, as, it, as it should be on earth. And then even with Abraham, which we already read about this morning. Why is Abraham blessed to the degree in which he's blessed? 12 verse 3. So that you will be a blessing to whom? The nations. And then Isaiah himself lays out the same mission of God for Israel in the Old Testament. The mission of God is not, is not reserved to Matthew 28 in the Great Commandment or the Great Commission. Like the Great Commission really is, is, is a is a leveling up from an old, old commission that's always been in existence. It's always been a part of what it means to be human, is to be on design, by design, is to be on mission with God. And when we deny that, we fundamentally deny the design that he's given us to function, which he says, I cannot approve of this. This is not how he made you. But at the end of the day, like, is it really such a big deal? Like, why is this such a big deal? Why does the psalmist mention these na- this nation thing. Because, listen to me, God's mission is ultimately to create fame for himself. And you and I are the crown jewel of creation created to herald his fame and majesty and beauty before the nations so that those who are far from him might come to him. So that this world looks more like the kingdom of God than ever before. And when you and I say, no, 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 I have other plans, God says, that's a bad idea because that's not how I've designed you. And to take on another design is not going to be met with my approval. God's approval comes at an incredibly high cost. Perfection. Israel couldn't do it. And if you and I are honest, we've dropped the ball one or two times. So let's go back to our original question. Because really the question is this, how do we gain God's approval? How can we gain God's approval? And here's the answer. You, you can't gain God's approval. <laughs> you can't. However, it can be earned for you. Notice what the psalmist does. He begins to pray for mercy in verses, in verses 14. 
He says, turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. And then he begins to fix his hope after he's praying for, as he's praying for mercy. He fixes hope on this singular character, this son of man. Right? And for the original hearers, you know, they were very acquainted with collective Israel being identified as God's son. Right? But what's, what's, what's curious is that centuries after this event unfolds, a special Israelite is going to appear on the scene. And the crowds will call him Jesus. But do you know what he calls himself? Son of man. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is that the Gospels are going to tell us that he is the only one, past, present, future, to succeed in Israel's mission. He is the faithful Israelite. He succeeds in every way that Israel fails. Like Israel, he comes out of Egypt, passing through the waters. Like Israel, he's tested in the wilderness, yet he succeeds. He's pronounced God's son in whom I am well pleased, God says at his baptism. Jesus, in the most true sense, is true Israel. He takes on all the characteristics, all of the, all of the ramifications, all of the covenant stipulations, and succeeds in every portion imaginable. Yet, the most ironic turn of events is the very one whom God approves, the only one that God fully approves and endorses, Israel disapproves. Israel rejects, and they take him, and they beat him, and they mock him, and he willingly gives himself over to all of it, specifically being hung and killed on a cross, and we say, why? The psalmist's prayer is being answered. Why is Israel not so elated? The Son of Man has come. Why? Why does he go, have to go through all of that? And the answer, my friends, is this. Because of you and because of me. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our shame, our guilt. He takes all of those things. He takes all of the ways in which we have been unfaithful to God and deserve his disapproval. And in exchange, he gives us his approval that he has from God. Jesus gives away his Father's approval so that we might gain it. You cannot earn God's approval, but you most certainly can gain it only through Jesus. And then when he gets up from the dead, he proves that that approval can be available to us. So where do we go from here? Here's what I want to do. I want you, if you're, if you're comfortable, I don't want to put you in a position where you're not comfortable, okay? But I do want to challenge you to be comfortable. If you're comfortable, I want, I want you to close your eyes for a second, okay? Kids, too. Close your, close your eyes, take a deep breath. We're, land, we're landing the plane, but for, before we do that, I, I think this is, this is important. Close your eyes, take some deep breaths, just relax. Now, for a second, I want you to imagine that God himself were to walk in here right now. And not only walk in here, but he were to sit down next to you. And at first, obviously, you're nervous. I mean, it is God sitting next to you. You're afraid to meet his eye line, but finally you get the courage and you meet his eye line. And his face, you notice, has a very particular expression on it. Now, don't say it out loud, but just in your own mind's eye, what is that expression? Is it a disapproving expression? 
Is he frustrated? Is he mad? Is he thinking, how could you do this? I've been so good to you and you, you have treated me like this. Unfortunately, I think for most of us when we think about that scenario, when we think about God's facial expression towards us, it's one of negativity. It's one of disapproving. But listen to me, my friends. Because of the work of Jesus, and only because of the work of Jesus, when God looks at us, he looks at us who have trusted in his son the same way that he looks at his own son with value and dignity and worth and beauty and utmost approval. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but rather because Jesus has earned it for you on your behalf. For those who have trusted in Christ, you can look up now, look at me. For those who have trusted in Christ, we get a new anthem. We get a new walkout song. We get a new, I, I don't know, the words of Zephaniah 3 become a reality for us when the prophet says, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's not disapproving. That's very approving. It's an invitation to belong. Now listen, let me close like this. I don't know what, because let me say this quickly. You and I are not given approval just for approval's sake. Just like Israel is not chosen just for chosen's sake. They're chosen because there's a mission. When Jesus fulfills everything Israel was supposed to be, he changes the movement of that mission. No longer is it centripetal where everyone, the nations come to Israel, like the Queen of Sheba. No longer is that the mission. That's not the movement. Now the movement is not internal, it's external. You and I have been designed to participate in that mission, which means this. You and I work with beautiful souls. We live among beautiful souls, people, We play around other people, and those people are not in your life by random accident. They're in your life because God has designed you to showcase his fame and glory as you serve and love them well. That's the challenge. That's what God is inviting us to do. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you, and I won't presume to know exactly what that looks like for you. But I do know this. It's what you've been made for. There is everybody is the best Christian somebody else knows. Everybody. When we interact, we we get afraid of interacting with people. And I understand, I get afraid of interacting with people. It's scary, you're putting yourself out there. But listen, the more we cherish how much we are approved by God, the more we trust in what Christ has done for us, the easier it is to interact with other people. Why? Because ultimately, you don't need their approval. You've already been approved by the the most high, most precious, most wonderful God. Let's do this thing. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, I thank you that you have designed us for this mission. Man, what a privilege it is. What a holy thing it is to be able to work side by side with you and with other other believers that have been changed by this gospel. Father, we live among people, including ourselves, who are looking for approval in all the wrong places. Lord, would your gospel be so true in our hearts, would the work of Jesus and the person that he is be so unbelievably desirable to us that we find our ultimate approval in you. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.